So as we open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 17, where it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We're picking up uh, this week where we left off last week. And remember, all of that kind of started back at the very beginning of chapter 4 when he transitioned from the doctrine of what we know about our position in Christ to then how do we live out that position in Christ in our daily lives. And in fact, at the very beginning of chapter 4, he said that we needed to walk in a manner worthy of the hope to which we've been called. And that hope that we've been called has been identified as this little phrase all through the first half of the book of Ephesians of being in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. And so now that we're in this position in Jesus Christ, uh, our life should reflect that. And one of the ways that it should reflect that is in our values. When we come to Christ, our life before didn't really line up with Christ-honoring values. It doesn't mean that everything that we ever did was completely horrible. But there were a lot of things that we did that were completely horrible. And that's exactly what he's telling these people. If you look back in chapter 2 and then up here in this chapter as well, he says, look, your past life did not line up. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We all lived out our selfish, sinful desires, he says, before coming to Christ. But now at this point, he says, once we come to Christ, that changes. But not everything changes right at that moment. Now, some things do. Because it puts us on a whole different path. When we come to Christ, we turn away from our sin and toward God. And so some things undoubtedly change momentarily. Somebody that I talked to before that said they used to swear like a sailor, and the moment they put their faith in Christ, it was just gone. But you know what? I've known other people that language was a real issue for them, and it was one that kind of dropped off a little slower. They They had to fight it. They had to wrestle with it a little bit. But that's the thing. When we've come to put our faith in Christ, we won. there's an instantaneous change. We've now become a child of God. Now the Holy Spirit indwells us, the Bible teaches us, at the moment that we put our faith in Christ. But it also gets us started in a process. A process by which we draw closer to God on a daily basis. 
We get more and more power over sin in our life. And so he gets us involved in that process. Well, we're coming to at the point in Ephesians in chapter 4 here. It's all about the process here at the end. This process involves, it's kind of like changing clothes. But he says you're going to take off the old clothes. It's kind of like a snake shedding its skin. Leaving that old skin behind because you got new skin underneath it. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. Is that process of shedding the old and clothing ourselves in the new. The Bible tells us if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things can become new. That's what Ephesians is talking about at this point, is how to live out that life as a new you. Putting on the new me is closely associated to, to being in Christ. It's, it's putting on Christ. Verse 20, But that is not the way you learned Christ. He's talking about the the life people used to live and their sinfulness before coming to Christ. He says there's all this stuff going on. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. In other words, now you need to live out Christ. You're in Christ. You need to live out His life in you. And then he goes on in verse 21, also assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. And so that's really what we're trying to do is this new life, this new self that I have, is a self that is in Christ. It's who I am in Jesus Christ. There's no comparison between what was in my old self and was in my new self. In my own old self, I'm sinful. In my old self, I have con- I'm, I'm condemned before God. In my new self, I'm forgiven. In my new self, I'm accepted by God. Why? Because I'm in Jesus Christ. So now... If I, my old self, if I was not accepted before God, now I am accepted before God, my life should reflect that, right? Somebody living out their old sinful, selfish nature should look a little different than somebody living out what it means to be in Christ. Let's look at a contrast between our old self and our new self, and that's where he begins. In verse 22, he says, "...to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires." First, we see that the old self, it says, is is corrupted. If we skip down to the next verse, in verse 24, it says, "...and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." So we see that our old self is is corrupted. Our new self is created to be like God. You know, it's kind of like, as I mentioned earlier, I've been having a little bit of trouble with my truck and had some trouble getting it started the other day and then was having trouble with the starter itself after that and different things. And and I've been kicking around the idea of getting a new truck because this one's kind of going the way of all the earth. It used to be great. I didn't buy it new, but I'm sure for the guy that bought it new, it was really great. But even when I got it, it was pretty good. But now it's uh, got all this rust along the bottom of it, and it's rusting out, and it's not running as smooth as it used to, and it's not riding as smooth as it used to, and it's just not, it's just corrupted. But then, looking at these new trucks, boy, you climb into one of those, and that's kind of a sweet ride. And that's kind of what we're doing here, is we're comparing the old and the new. And it says our old nature is corrupted, our, the new is, the new is new. In our new, when we look at ourselves, it's even better because we're created to be like God. Remember at the very beginning when we were made, we were made in the image of God. Adam and Eve corrupted that by entering into sin. And so we start out corrupted and then go back to the image of God through our salvation. That's what we're headed for. We're headed to be more and more like God. Now, not only does it use the word corrupted, but it also uses the word deceitful. We're corrupted by our old way which is deceitful. 
through deceitful desires. And on the other side of that, it's to be renewed. Because verse 23 says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The book of Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things. You know, you know, our hearts really are deceitful. Our hearts will lie to us. Our hearts will trick us. In the Garden of Eden, God built this beautiful garden with every kind of fruit that you can imagine. I assume every kind of fruit that we have around today was probably in that garden. That would be an amazing selection of fruit and vegetables and stuff. And Satan comes along because Satan said, you can't, you can't eat from the trees of the garden. He said, we can eat from all these trees. There's only one. There's only one we can't eat from. God had told him the day you eat of that fruit, death comes. You die. Satan said, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat that fruit, you're going to become like God. It's going to be like a whole new elevation for you. And Eve believed it. She believed that the God that created her, loved her, provided for her, all this stuff, she believed that He is holding out, holding back on her. And so she took the fruit and she ate it and she gave it to Adam. And him, eyes wide open, took and ate it too. Deliberate disobedience to God. Ate it and it brought us into the mess that we're in. That same deceitful heart, the way she was deceived by Satan, is the same way that we get deceived today. It's not, no different. How many times have we been just sure that this thing that we're going to participating in, yes, the Bible condemns it. No, we shouldn't do it. Well, God doesn't want us to do it. But just this makes me happy. This will lead to my happiness. You know, there's been times where I sit down with somebody and say, look, this, this direction that you're heading is clearly not right. It's clearly not what you should be doing. And we can look up Scripture passages dealing with it and stuff like that. And the response is something like this. Well, then I just have to go through life being unhappy. And I think, is that really where we're at here? Then we got God's way and your way. And your way is going to lead to ultimate happiness. And if you follow God's way, it's not. You're going to have a life of misery doesn't make sense to me because it just doesn't make sense but the fact of the matter is is our deceitful sinful self will lie to you over and over and over to get you to do something wrong the world the flesh the devil they're all working together all the time deceiving promising fulfillment promising happiness down paths that do not lead you to that option you know i remember reading a book years ago um, called Five Lies of the Century. In fact, it was probably about 21 years ago because it was the turn of the century. And I read the book and he says, you know, as we look over the last century, there's about five lies that our culture has embraced that have proven themselves to not be true. And I remember one of the lies that was listed in the book was the sexual revolution has set us free. He says, what have we learned since the time where our culture really swung that direction and decided that it was time to put off the sexual mores and the sexual norms that we had in the past that were rooted into our Christian heritage. And when it was time to set those things off and just uh, more of a free expression sexually within our society and within our culture, and they said, what have we learned from that? And then he went through all these studies of our culture and the statistics dealing with those things. So he put up the results of what we've experienced as a culture when it comes to the issue of sexuality. And you know what he found? He found that this free sexuality did not lead to the freedom and the fulfillment that the movement promised at the beginning. Quite the opposite. It led to a lack of fulfillment and a lack of freedom in those same areas. In fact, when he put up the studies, he said the people, as you survey the nation today, the people in our nation that are the most sexually satisfied are people that are faithfully married to one individual. 
And if you just stop and think that through for a minute, it just kind of makes sense. You know, the world will tell you that person out there leading the high life, that single out there that's moving from partner to partner and living that kind of faster-paced life, that, boy, that's exciting, that's thrilling, that's satisfying. Completely the opposite. They're the bottom of the rung on who's the most satisfied when it comes to that area. In fact, when you get down to the demographics of it, the most satisfied person in that area of life is Protestant women. But you know what? Our hearts lie to us. Our minds lie to us. Our old self, it's lies. But enough of us believe that to get a big swing in our culture going that direction. But in the end, when you look back, when you get enough data to look at the social studies, you find that, wow, God's way was actually more fulfilling all along. It was more satisfying all along. It's more exciting all along. Deceitful. Now, compared to what? Compared to, I love this, the renewed mind, as it says in verse 23. It says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And that's what some of these things are going to be issues of attitude, some of action, some kind of of both. But he says, we are not left to that deceitfulness. When we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. We can set that mindset aside. We can turn away from the deceitfulness of our old sinful self. And we can get engaged in a process of renewing the mind. In fact, that's a big part of our spiritual growth. It's by renewing our mind that we're able to put off the ways of the old self and to put on the ways of the new self. Well, then lastly, it also says our desires, which of course he's talking about sinful desires, wrong desires. And in contrast, as we grow in our likeness to God, as we experience this renewed mind, that leads to righteousness and holiness. We get to grow in our level of personal holiness and righteousness as we put on the new you. Which remember, as we're going through this, keep in mind, that new you, that's who you are. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the old you doesn't really belong anymore. The old you is corrupt and deceitful, has deceitful desires. The new you, if you've put on Christ, you're now in Christ. You, that's where you belong. That's really where the real freedom is. Because when you think about it, that's what we were created for to begin with. We were created in the image of God. We were created for fellowship with God. We were created to be holy before God. We were created to be righteous before God. And so that really is what should feel the most at home to us. Because that's what we are destined for. Before coming to Christ, we've been living in this alien corruption that came in after the creation that should be foreign to our experience except for the fact that everybody experiences it. You see, it's kind of like I remember sharing it at a Christian camp years ago. I came in with a with a bowl full of water and a goldfish, and I just set it up on the podium while I while I preached to the teenagers there at that camp. And at one point, we started talking about this goldfish, and I said, "You know what? That goldfish. Don't you feel sorry for that goldfish in that little bowl? Look at all this room that we have out here." And I pulled the goldfish out and I set it on the podium, and it started flopping around, and everybody started going crazy a little bit. And then I put the goldfish, returned it back to the water, and I said, look, just let me ask you a question. Where is that goldfish the most free? That goldfish is more free in that little bowl of water than it is in all this room out here. Why? Because that's what he was made for. That's the environment he was made for. The world would have you believe that if you confine yourself to Christian values and principles, that you are, you are not free. I would argue that that is totally where you are free. It's out in the wasteland of broken values and morality that you are not free. That's where you're in bondage because sin will always put you in bondage. Where you are free is within the confines of what it means to live in Christ. 
where you most fulfill and demonstrate that you are made in the image of God. That's where you're free. That's where you're home. That's where you belong. Well, as we do that then, he starts to go through all these examples. With all the examples, he gives the example of what we're to put on. What positive value should we instill in our life? What corrupt practice should we be getting out of our lives? And what is the reason for why we should be doing that? Well, the first one that we find, therefore, in verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And the reason is for we are members one of another. It's impossible to have a relationship with somebody that's not truthful. I remember talking to my kids about that when they were growing up. When one of my kids would lie, I would sit down with them and say, look, we're on a path here and it's not a good path. Because if you lie to me, then I can't trust you. And that's what makes up a relationship. If I can't believe what you're telling me, there's no point in you really telling me it to begin with. And so if the trust is broken down in that relationship, there's no real relating going on. Because everything that you say, it's all like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. How do I know? And I remember explaining that to my kids. That Look, you're because you're part of this family. You're leading this family in a really bad direction if you're dishonest. We're going to have a family that can't trust one another. We can't know what's what in dealing with this situation. And that's exactly what Paul's reason here is, or God's reason. He says, look, speak the truth. Don't lie. Why? Because we are members one of another. We have, to, we have to have the truth to be able to function together. So we need to speak the truth, put on truth, put off falsehood. And then also, we need to put off sin in anger. Be angry. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What are we supposed to put off? We're supposed to put off sinning when we're angry. It's not that you're never going to be angry. In fact, we should be angry. Sometimes I think we should be angrier than, than we are over certain issues. But some things, there's a lot of corruption going on in this world, and some of it ought to make you mad. Of course, we need to make sure that we're mad at our own corruption too, not just everybody else's. I think Jesus is a great example of that. Jesus was, was meek, the Bible says, which means kind of strength, but under control. But even Jesus in His meekness, when He got into the temple, wreaked havoc on that place. Now, Jesus never exercised his anger over things that were personally directed at him. Even while he hung on that cross, he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But that same person, when he went into the temple, and the area that was designated for the Gentiles to be able to worship was filled with loud animals that were being sold for the sacrifice, was filled with money changers that were making money on changing foreign currency so that people could buy their animals from them to offer as sacrifices in the, in the temple worship and all that stuff. When Jesus saw a, a place that was supposed to be dedicated to the worship of His Father turned into a corrupt den of thieves, Jesus, it says, flipped over the money tables and He grabbed some reeds that were nearby and used them as a whip and He drove people and animals out of that temple with that whip. Now we know that Jesus did not sin, but yet we see Him very angry at that point. But you see, that's the thing. is There are some things that you're going to be angry about. But the hard part is knowing what things to be angry about and what level to be angry about those things. Aristotle said anyone can become angry, but to be angry at the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, this is not easy. Well, the Bible gives us some help with that. The first thing that he says is to keep short accounts. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Some of the best marriage advice you can get right there. Don't let a moment's problem turn into days' problems or weeks' problems. Keep short accounts. Handle those things. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told the people, He says, look, if you're before the altar worshiping God, going to give God a gift, and you realize that your friend has something against you, leave your gift before presenting it. Go and make yourself right with your friend. Then come back to Me. That's how important this principle is. Jesus said, even if you think you're going to worship, don't worship till you've made that right. Go make that right. At least do your part. You can't, you can't control both sides of a relationship, but you make your effort. Take your step. Reach out. He says, then you can come back to me and worship. I don't know how many times in my relationship with Lisa over the years that this has truly benefited our relationship. Because there's sometimes, you know, where you get frustrated or something like that. And there's been even times where I frustrated and I go to, I go to pray. And I, as soon as I go to pray, I'm like, oh, well, I guess I can't do that. God says, don't come to me. Go to her. And so then you go to her. Don't let the sun go down. Don't, don't let that thing fester. And what's the reason? Protection from the devil. So, so he doesn't get a foothold. When you're in a relationship and there's a moment of anger or a time, he says, if, if that's not dealt with quickly, if that's not handled, that's a real opportunity for Satan to get involved. That's a serious weak spot in our life. That's a real glitch in our armor at that point where Satan really has a foothold there where he can get in and put a little pressure and uh, get things going way worse than they ever started out. But then not only that, we also see that the next one is stealing. And he says you need to stop stealing and the, and the answer to that is work. What's the reason to be able to share with others? It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What is stealing? Stealing is me taking something from you for my own benefit. You know, when you're on the side being stolen from, boy, does that feel horrible. It makes you feel completely vulnerable. I've had a couple instances in my life. I remember one time when Lisa's purse was stolen. We were living in Oatana and we went to the public library and she took her purse, set it on top of the minivan, got kids out and stuff, and then we walked into the library, didn't think about the fact that the purse was still on top of the car. We walked back out and the purse was gone and we all of a sudden we realized, oh, it was on top of the car. Looked around, no trace of it anywhere, it was just gone. Man, that felt horrible. Because inside there is, you know, driver's license and credit cards and has your address on it and your keys to your house and your keys to your car. And I never realized what an invasion it is when something is stolen from you. You really feel violated over it. Well, that's what stealing is. Stealing is I have no concern for you and how this impacts you. I have only thoughts of the benefit that it's going to bring to myself. It's completely self-absorbed. His solution for that is the opposite. His solution is that is don't steal work. Work. And he says, in fact, work hard enough, work long enough that you have enough to provide for yourself so you're not stealing from somebody else. Provide for yourself and benefit them. Work hard enough so that you have enough to take care of yourself and give to other people and help other people out. Now that feels really good for both people actually. Stealing is taking from somebody else for my own working and generosity is the solution to that. So why? So that we can be a benefit to somebody else with the things that we have. Okay, then also he goes into our speech. In verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only 
such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I've had numerous discussions on this one over the years. What's a big deal about swearing? I mean, it's just a word. It's just sounds that run together. It's just a word. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is everything boils down to a word. If you think about it, that's what communication is based on is words. Words are, are hugely important. It's, it's communication is what it is. For some reason, and I don't know what starts it, but for some reason in every culture around the world, there are words that are corrupt. And I don't know what they are in any other culture, but I know what they are in my culture. It doesn't stop people from using them, but you know what? It ought to stop us from using them. We should always be using good words to communicate with other people. The words that we have that are corrupt communication today may not be the same as they were back however long ago, back when our country was started. They might have had different corrupt words back then, but the point is there's always corrupt words, and you know what they are within a society. It's no mystery. Everybody knows what they are. They're the ones that a mom tells her kids not to say. And so don't use those. For somebody that's in Christ, if we're the son of God, why would we use the devil's language? It just doesn't make any sense. I would deal with words, but not only with words, but also the things that are being said or the the overall subjects that you're covering. And I like the way that it puts it. It says uh, that they're to be used for building up. It says, as fits the occasion, and that it may give grace. There's three principles right there that it gives us for our communication. Our communication should always have the goal of building up other people, not tearing them down. We want to build people up. But then it also says, as fits the occasion. In other words, your words are appropriate. They're fitting for where you, where you are in the conversation that you're having and in the crowd that you're in and the group that you're with. They're going to be appropriate. And then lastly, to bring grace. In other words, you're not just giving people what they deserve in, in your language. You're, giving, you're bringing grace to the situation. You're trying to raise it up a notch. You're going to take that high road with your speech. And then finally, lastly, it says there's a harshness. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then where do we replace that with? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so with these both of them, I just kind of boiled it down to one word for each of them because there's a quite a long list that goes in each one of them. And those words are somewhat self-explanatory, but if you boil them down to a concept, it's probably on the one they're harsh. There's wrath and clamor. and He says, let all that bitterness, let all that go and put on compassion. Compassion. And what's the reason for it? The reason he brings up at the very end of the list that's how we follow God. That's, that's the way God, God forgave us. Let's be forgiving toward other people. God is gentle with us. Let us be gentle with other people. God is gracious toward us. Let us be gracious toward other people. We need to mirror God. You know what? Too many times in our, in our conversations and in our activities, we give back what we got. That should not be our motive. What we should give back or what we should respond with should be what would God respond with. That's what should control our rebuttals. We are to forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven. God has forgiven us an unfathomable amount. And He says, so now, as the forgiven by God, as those who are in His image, 
shouldn't we follow the same example? Shouldn't it be just kind of part of our nature to forgive those other people that have offended us? And God says, when I have forgiven you of so much, how can you not forgive other people when it's so little in comparison to everything that I've forgiven you for? We need to imitate God. So as we look at it, we're called to follow a process. That process involves shedding. Shedding the clothing of our former lifestyle. Getting rid of those negative things in our life that were part of our old, selfish, sinful self. And enjoy your new life in Christ. And you know, if you look at those two lists, how could you not thoroughly enjoy this new life in Christ? Because it's way better than the old one. The old one involved falsehood and it involved lying and, and, and sinning and their anger and their wrath and, and stealing from one another and, and using foul language within their homes, within their families, within their community and, and harshness toward one another. Who wouldn't rather live in a home where there's truth and keeping short accounts and we work so that we be benefit to other people and all of our speech is about building one another up and it's appropriate for the setting that it's in and it's gracious to one another and compassionate toward other people. That is truly a life to be enjoyed. That is the life that we're called to live as we flesh out what it means to be in Christ.